Well, I, I thought I would begin tonight giving the Sunday evening group a special privilege that I don't give the Sunday morning people. I want to give you a quiz. Don't you feel privileged? Okay. Uh, those of you who have been here will probably have memorized a good portion of the uh, questions that I'm going to ask you. Uh, a couple of them are new just because of some of my pet peeves. So uh, let me ask you all what book it is that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Revelation. Okay. What's the name of that book? The Revelation of John. The Revelation of? No, it is not the Revelation of John. Okay, two points. First of all, it is not Revelations. It is the Revelation. One, Revelation. And it's not the revelation of John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the point of the title is to tell us it was given to reveal to us Jesus. In the midst of a church that was suffering, John was suffering for the name of Jesus. And so God revealed himself to John for his encouragement in the midst of the affliction he was going through. And this book has been written for the church, the people of God, throughout the ages to help us understand the affliction that the church has gone through for the name of Jesus. Now, the other question in my quiz is, what is the basic message of this book? Now, Sam, you can't answer this one yet. In the end, you may get your chance, but at least right now, you're not going to. What's the message of this book? I'm sorry? The establishment of the kingdom of Christ and what? And Jesus Christ as the king. And Jesus Christ is the king, okay. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, it's about the second coming of Christ. All right, that's good. Okay, it's about the things that you have seen, that you are seeing, and the things that you will see in the future. That's the structure of the book. Past, Jesus seated on the throne. Present, his walking among the churches, overseeing the life of his people. And finally, what's going to happen in the future. We still haven't quite struck on the basic message of this book. I mean, is that God wins? Yeah, 
right. The real message of this book is the end of the story. God wins. No matter how bad it looks right now, no matter how much turmoil may be in the world around us, and we don't know the half of it because we have a pretty peaceful life in Guatemala. You may not believe that. But I invite you to talk to people from Sudan or from Nigeria or China or North Korea. There are 50 nations of the world where God's people are suffering persecution. It's a relative scale. But the 50 most afflicted in Guatemala isn't on that list. Nor is the United States on that list. So when we look at books like this, we look at the theology in them, but we don't look at the basic message, which is in the midst of all the turmoil and all the suffering, the political stuff going on in the world around us, we know how the story ends. God wins. And those who are faithful triumph with him. So we've been asking the basic question, what in the world is going on? What's all this turmoil around us about? And so in the last few weeks, we've been looking in particular at the significance of the current turmoil that we are seeing in the world around us. When I ask myself that question, I always go back in my thinking to Psalm 2, where it tells us that the peoples of the world are plotting to defeat God, to keep him from having control over our lives, and to destroy the people of God. And we see that's Satan's plan. Satan and his world system are at war, seeking to defeat God's work and destroy the people of God. Book of Revelation was written, as we noted a minute ago, written to God's people in the midst of suffering for his namesake to encourage us by helping us to understand God's perspective on what's going on around it. When I think of that, I think back to Psalm 2 and the plotting of the nations, thinking that they're somehow going to overthrow God and his anointed one, the Christ. And you know what it says, what God's response to that is? He laughs. Here's the nations roaring, saying, we're going to defeat God and his people. We won't have God rule over us. We're going to do our own thing. And while it may sadden the heart of God, the very thought that we could overwhelm God and stop his purposes is laughable. The book was written to help us see what's going on around us as God sees it. To show us the outcome, how it ends, and to motivate us in the light of 
the end of the story to remain faithful to him, whatever it may cost us. As it presents God's perspective on what's going on, answers that question, what in the world is going on? He presents Christ as judge of the universe, judging his creation, sitting on his throne, ruling the world. However impossible that may seem in the light of the circumstances. Now, I'm going to take us through a fairly large chunk of the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at a lot of details tonight. But I, I want to give you a tip up front. This, many of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight, many people have different opinions about them. I'm going to present how I see the passages we look at tonight. And it will probably sound convincing until somebody else comes along and says, I don't agree with that. But that's really not the important thing. And what I want you to understand is if what I tell you tonight from the, these last chapters of the book of Revelation, if what I tell you tonight goes against what you've already heard from somebody else, it's okay. I'm not trying to get you to agree with my perspective and I acknowledge up front there are lots of other perspectives on these passages other than mine. But what I do want you to get is the main thought of this passage is not up for debate. The main thought is clear. And unless you just turn your back on God and reject him and reject his word, you have to come to the main thought. So don't get lost in the details. Don't get all wrapped up in, wow, or I can't believe he said that. Don't get all wrapped up in that. Listen for the main point, and I'll tell you up front what it is. I've already told you many times in these last few weeks. God wins. And those who are faithful triumph with him. And if you walk away from here with that, if you don't walk away from here with a head full of knowledge, with all these details I'm going to tell you, fine. But if, when you walk out of here tonight, I want you to walk out of here with a strong impression that the rest of the story, what we can't see right now, but what God tells us is going to happen is that he wins and the faithful triumph with him. God is in control of the world, however out of control things may appear. God has not lost his position. He still sets up kings and takes them down or sets up presidents and takes them down. He still considers even pagan kings with abominable approaches to the world, even they are seen in scripture as his servants accomplishing his purpose for his world. And if we walk away with that, I'll be totally content. 
the point here is he will be victorious and the faithful will participate in that victory. Now, chapters 4 through 11 describe God's plan for the future. Remember, we, somebody mentioned a few minutes ago, we were talking about the context, talks about the past, and it depicts Jesus seated on the throne, talks about the present, and shows Jesus walking among the churches in control of his people. But beginning with chapter 4, through the rest of the book, he's looking at the future and telling us what's going to happen in the future. And chapters 4 through 11 deal with God's program that in reality has barely started at this point. And it describes that program and it comes to its climax. You think you're at the end of the story if you didn't know how many pages are left. You think you're at the end of the story. When you come to chapter 11, you come to the second coming of Christ. The trumpet sounds, Christ appears and establishes his kingdom. What more could there be? And then the Spirit tells John, I want you to start the story again. And chapter 12 through 18 tells the same story, but from the perspective of Satan's program and what he wants to accomplish in the world. And he has, he has his own trinity, him, the beast, and the false prophet who work to accomplish his plan in the world. And that's chapter 12 through 18. And in that plan, chapters 14 to 18 present God's response to Satan's attempt to take charge and ruin everything. We don't have time to look at all those details, but what I want you to understand, and, and you can check me out on this, when you get to chapter 18, we are right back where we started at the end of chapter 11. You've got these two streams of thought going through the book. One of them is God's plan for the future. And the other is Satan's plan for the future. And they come together at the beginning of chapter 19. And that's where we see the rest of the story. Chapters 19 through 22 describe the climax of the, of the conflict. Picks up where chapter 11 left off. The spirit of victory is fresh in the air. You can feel it coming as you read the climax beginning in chapter 19. The first 10 verses, chapter 19, 1 to 10, present what's going on in heaven as the excitement builds among the hosts of heaven and so this whole climax begins with worship. Praise for God because of what God is about to do in the world. Beginning in verse 1, he says, after this, 
I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the world by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. The hosts of heaven praise God because he has dealt with those who judged his people. He wins. The victory is his. And he reigns forever. That heavenly preparation prepares the way for a great celebration, for a wedding that has been a long time coming, thousands of years along the way. The wedding celebration is described in chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. It's time for the wedding of the Lamb with his bride, the church. And as you read this story, you see there are two groups of people who are blessed, who are content, who are satisfied. The first is the bride, described in verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. That's one group of blessed, content, satisfied people. But there's another group here. And it reminds me of Jesus' words when he talked about the Father who was preparing a great feast for to celebrate the wedding of his son. And so he sends for the invited guests. He sends to them and says, come, we are ready. And they began to make excuses. They didn't want to come. And so the father says to his servants, go out on the highways and the byways and compel people to come in to participate in the great celebration for my son. That's the group that's being described in verse 9. His invited guests. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So this great wedding is about to take place. And it's sort of the launching of the millennium. A period of a thousand years described in chapter 19, verse 11, through chapter 20, verse 3. <coughs> the heavens are open, 
And Christ descends to prepare to establish his kingdom. And his second coming is described in verses 11 to 16. It's pictured in the first few verses, beginning with verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Interesting, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is now writing these words. Remember how he started his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And now here, this one who comes, who's pictured here as riding in on a white horse, whose name is Faithful and True, dressed in a garment dipped in blood, his name is the Word of God. He comes accompanied by the armies of heaven. Verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And he's ready to judge the nations. Verse 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this one who's coming with the armies of heaven to judge the nations speaks with authority, strikes down the nations, rules with an iron scepter, administers the judgment of God. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verses 17 to 21 describe his victory over the nations. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Uh, a good way to translate the expression birds here would be the vultures. In the context, that's the idea of it. Cries in a loud voice to all the vultures flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider, on the horse, and all the vultures gorged themselves on their flesh. Can you just picture the scene developing? Begins with the vultures, uh, reminds me of when you're driving out across the desert and you see this circle 
of blackbirds flying around, you know there's prey there of some kind. The vultures are gathered to prepare to clean up. The nations turn to fight against this rider on the white horse. But Christ triumphs over the nations. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. The remaining armies are killed by the sword from his mouth. And the vultures have a feast. I don't know if I'd say hallelujah to that one or not. Are we really going to say hallelujah? The vultures are having a feast. That's okay. You can say hallelujah if you want to. We know who wins. And that's worth a hallelujah. The story doesn't quite end there, though. Chapter 20 begins with the binding of Satan. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. Any question who they're talking about? No room for doubt here, is there? The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, they capture him, seize the dragon, bind him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So Satan is taken captive. He's chained in the abyss. He can't do his thing for the next thousand years, which leads into the thousand years in which Christ establishes his kingdom on earth, described in verses 4 through 6. The faithful will be resurrected to enjoy the blessings of that time. Those who are resurrected here are not condemned. Those who are still alive at the end of this battle, who've been those, those who've been fighting against Jesus, but now some didn't, those are the ones who are still alive. They didn't oppose him. And we're told that all will submit to Jesus' authority during that time. But some only submit by force. And at the end of that time, they're just waiting their chance. And Satan is released to lead a great rebellion against God. And these people are more than happy to join him. So there's a final rebellion described in verses 7 through 10. Rebels get their chance when Satan is released and organizes a final rebellion, which leads into the judgment of the great white throne. Verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20. John sees a great white throne, and there is the judge seated on it. All the dead who have not already been resurrected, which are the people of God, all those who haven't already been resurrected are resurrected and taken before the judgment seat. This resurrection is for people who don't trust Jesus. The others were already raised. 
Since they haven't trusted him, they're judged based on their works. And none of us would make it that way. And so to, to be sure there's not a mistake, not that God thinks he might have made a mistake, but just to show that there's no mistake, he takes out the book of life and he looks for their names. And those who sit or stand before this judgment seat are not written there. And so they are condemned and cast into the lake of fire. And John finishes this passage with a logical question. What then? After the thousand years and the judgment takes place, what comes after that? Beginning with chapter 21, he describes the eternal state. New conditions are described. A new heaven and new earth. A new Jerusalem prepared as a place of residence for saints. God's people live there in blessing. And he dwells in our midst. To remain faithful. The glory of God and his presence are our inheritance. Which makes the suffering that the people of God have gone through insignificant. God himself and the Lamb form the temple. The light provided by God's glory make the sun and the moon unnecessary. No night, no impurity. The river of the water of life comes from God and provides fruitfulness and prosperity and blessing for the people of God. In summary, at the end of the story, the rest of the story is that God will be present among his people and abundantly provide everything we need. The curse will be removed. God's servants will serve and reign with him. So going back to what I said at the beginning, we've gone through a lot of material, a lot of scripture, a lot of details, and a very real possibility that perhaps your view of those things differs from the way I've read it. But don't get lost in the details and lose the perspective of what's taking place here. This place, after all of this suffering that has taken place, when it's all complete, the rest of the story is God wins and we win with him. We participate in his victory. Now, chapter 22, verses 6 through 21 give the conclusion of the story, or, or excuse me, the conclusion of the book. And, and there's a number of pieces here, and, and I just want to go through rapidly what those pieces tell us. Uh, but I'm going to select parts of this 
rather than look at all the details that are described here. In verse 7, we see that there's blessing for those who are obedient. For those who've heard the word of this book and been faithful to God in the midst of it. There is blessing for them because they see what God is doing. They understand where they fit and they have a hope based on what God has promised he is about to do. In the midst of the hard times, there's a hope because God has made a promise about the rest of the story. Verses 10 and 11 tell us the purpose of the revelation and it's an interesting purpose the way it's worded. It will separate the righteous, the followers of Jesus from the wicked. And what he tells us about it is when we read this revelation, those who follow Jesus and participate in God's plan as he lays it out here, those people will be reinforced. Their, their hope, their confidence will be reconfirmed, will be strengthened. But the interesting side of this is you would think, you know, if people who have rejected God, who have rejected Christ, if they read this, certainly they're going to say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done, and I, and I want to turn to you. That's what you would expect. But that's not what you find here. What you find here is, again, Psalm 2, it's a deliberate rejection of God. And they say as much as to say, we've heard the promise, but we're not going to have this God rule us. We're not going to acknowledge his right to rule. And they confirm and strengthen their rejection. Uh, the picture of that for me comes in Revelation 6, when the people uh, on earth are being judged by God. It's part of his program. And, and they cry out to the rocks, bury us to protect us from the wrath of God. They know it's the wrath of God. Do they turn to God and say, God, I'm sorry? No. They cry out to the rocks to bury them because they still don't want to submit to him. Verses 12 to 15 show his promise. An encouraging promise for people who are suffering for his namesake. Christ is coming soon. He will reward each one justly. Therefore, remain faithful. The source of the revelation is Jesus. Verse 16. Christ himself sends this message. He's aware of their need for encouragement. And so he sends this message for our encouragement. He will come. And he will give us victory. Verse 17 is an invitation to the reader. Invites any who wish to turn to Christ and to receive the water which produces life. And then he concludes his conclusion with a promise to the reader. The certainty of Christ's promise. 
He is coming soon. Which leads him to pray from the depths of his heart, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are waiting for you. Come. So what? What difference does this make? As we read the story of those who suffer for the name of Jesus, we will never understand the intensity of their praise to God that comes at the end of the book until we really understand what they have gone through to get there the pain that they have endured. And I think of people we have known, people from Sudan who lost everything, escaped from their village barefoot in the middle of the night, left family and friends. We think of people we know in Nigeria and many we don't know there and the suffering they have gone through. We think of other countries where suffering is going on. In the light of what they have endured, when they see the rest of the story, they are filled with intense praise to God for what he's done. The persecution books of scripture, we immediately think of Daniel and Revelation. But there are numerous others as well. Those books were written to the people of God in the midst of their affliction, suffering for his namesake, hearing the voice of God saying, I am with you, saying, the victory is mine, and you will triumph with me. Christ wins and the faithful triumph with him. Which provokes, as we've looked at this story, and we've seen these two groups of people out there, provokes a question, whose side are we on? Are we committed to his side? We haven't had a lot of affliction in our lifetime. We may yet. Are we with those who are suffering for his namesake? Are we on his side? Or do we even care? Father, we are grateful because you have watched over us. You have drawn us to yourself. You have given us new life in Christ. And in our lifetime, you have given us freedom. Father, we pray for your people in the midst of the affliction who are suffering the things that these books talk about. Father, we pray that, that they would not lose their perspective, that they would see, as chapter 1 reveals, they would see the judge seated on his throne in all of his glory, ruling over your world. That they would trust you. Remain faithful and not lose heart. 
Then, Father, we think of our life here in Guatemala or in the United States, where we have freedom to speak for you, to share what you've done with us without suffering physical persecution as a result. Lord, our prayer would be that rather than getting confident in that situation, that we would use that situation, that freedom you have given to us, to share good news with people around us while we still have the freedom to do it. We pray that as we prayed for those in suffering, we pray for us that we would not lose our perspective, that we would not begin to focus on the stuff that we have enjoyed, but that we would focus on you and the privilege you've given us of being your children. And we would proclaim good news to people around us. Use us to that end for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.